0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram and I hope you enjoy this episode. Manually as well. So we are up to the bracha of Pokeh Ivrim. Um And it's interesting that that we're giving this shir tonight, the night of B'dikar Hametz. Because you know the Hasidim... Used to read the Mishnah. Well, what is B'dikas Chametz based on? What is going through the house with a candle and you know putting ten pieces of bread in ten rooms in the house, etc.? What is that all based on? It's based on a Mishnah in P'sachim, right? Or Barasar, Barasar, B'otkinat Chametz Laar right? On the on the night of the fourteenth of Nisan, we check for Chametz by the light of a candle. The Hasidim actually used to read this Mishnah on Rosh Hashanah. Because they felt that it had a spiritual component, which we'll get to. That we're not just physically looking for chametz, but we're trying to find the chametz within. And the Or HaNer, obviously, Ki Ner Mitzvah V'Torah Or, Ner is the light of Torah, it's the light of mitzvot. And this is how we get rid of the chametz in our lives, right? So if you remind me, we'll we'll, we'll get back to that. First of all, where, is, where do we find this concept of Pokeh Hivrim? Some of you will recognize this from Tehillim. Right? This is, in the Book of Psalms, this is one of the Tehillim, one of the Mizmorim. It's actually the first Mizmor after Ashrei that we say every morning, right? Li Hashem, right? And in the middle of this Mizmor, which is all about the fact that, you know, that the essence of me should sing praise. It's not an act of praising Hashem, it's that, Who I am and everything I am should be a living praise to Hashem. It should be demonstrating, um, you know, sort of the greatness of Hashem. So it says, Right? These are some of the Berkot HaShachar that we say in the morning. Hashem releases the prisoners, frees us from the prison of sleep. Hashem opens our eyes, right? Lifkoach, right? Hashem um, zokeit kifufim, he straightens us up. So what does it mean, Hashem pokach You know, it's interesting. In modern Hebrew, the phrase pokach is eye-opening. Like, If you see something that's really surprising, it's like eye-opening, right? So that's called in Hebrew pokach Why is it that when you're surprised, it opens your eyes? And what does it mean, to be ivrim, And how does this relate to tonight? I figure for giving a night, you know, a she for us, we've already done the B'dika. You know, you guys are still uh, headed into that zone. Um so what does it mean to be ivrim? Where do we find this, right? First of all, just just a moment about Badika Khamitz. You know, um a lot of us are this year are having this experience. It, it's for me at least the first sort of experience where you really realize that you're in a different reality. I mean, first of all, for me personally, this is the first time in seven or eight years that I've gotten to do B'dika, Kisidro, to do the full checking for chametz according to all of the traditions in halachot in my home, with a bracha, because for the last number of years, I, I've traveled to run Pesach somewhere else, and if you, you know, are flying somewhere else, so then you do a bdika without a bracha. If you if you fly within 30 days of the Chag, you're supposed to do a bedikah and check your home for chametz, right? For unleavened bread, etc. But you do it without a bracha unless it's the night before Pesach. So that's interesting. There's something lacking in the bdika, in the checking, if it doesn't come right before the Chag, right before Pesach. Why is that? Interesting, right? And for me personally, not only that, but, you know, many people tonight... I mean, I imagine you guys anticipated a very different type of badika, right? You were, if you even thought about it, were expecting, you know, you'd do a badika. For those of you who are in Israel, you'd do a badika in the dorms. Maybe you wouldn't have a badika with a bracha because you'd be leaving the dorms before the night of badika. Maybe you would have flown back and been at home, but your stuff would be back in Israel. Now you're back in your family's homes. I assume everybody on the call and so you actually have a chiv to do the bedikah in your home, without getting into the halachic specifics of, you know, if your parents do it, and you out see all those kinds of questions. Um, so this is a different reality. Um, when I was a kid growing up, my parents made a big deal out of this ritual. We had a candle, you know, we had a holder. My brothers and I used to fight who got to hold the candle. You know, there would mysteriously be 10 pieces of chametz all over the house. We would have to find them. Uh, you know, it was sort of a battle between my mom and my dad. My mom wanted to put it somewhere that was very easy to find. And she was like watching over us like a hawk because we were little kids that we shouldn't spill a crumb on the floor because the house is basically ready for Pesach, right? And my father wanted it to be more of a game. So he would kind of hide it in places that you couldn't find it. And whoever found it, you know, got a prize at the end and that sort of thing. So I got to relive this experience really for the first time with, in many, many years since I did it with my kids, with our grandson. Cause, uh, my aunt and Elia live in Efrat, so therefore we've been pretty much helping with the kids and we're kind of like a family unit, so we're allowed to be together for Pesach. So I got to walk around with him and my granddaughter with the candle and the whole thing. What's the game? What is this, what is it we're trying to do in B'dikar Chames? You know, like you've already cleaned your house for Pesach. You've taken all the chamits. Go drop a piece of bread on the floor and watch what happens to your mom. You know what I mean? Like it's done. And then we go back and put these pieces in the room and you actually have to do it by the light of a candle. It's a whole halachic literature. If you don't have a candle, can you use a flashlight and all these types of questions? What's the game? What is it we're trying to do? So in order to understand this, right, let's take a look at the bracha of Bokeh Chivrim. Now where do we find the concept of the Iver? Right? The Iver is the blind person. Right, So one of the things that you see, one of the places that you see this, right, is in the halach of Shochad. Right? In, in, in the Torah, in Parash it says, V'lo tikach Shochad, a person should not take a bribe. Ki HaShochad, because a bribe, this appears in two places in the Torah, it will blind the eyes of the wise now why does Shochat blind you right so ostensibly if i'm a judge and I take a bribe so i'm not seeing things clearly anymore i'm not seeing things objectively right i can't um i can't sort of perceive things the way I'm meant to perceive them. The first time, we actually talk about why this is um, done specifically you know sort of in the Torah for all of us. Like if it's really a halacha for a judge why do I need to know not to take a bribe? So if Desler in the Mikhtar Meliyah makes a good point says imagine you want to look up a halacha. Let's say you want to know what the halacha is. You want to know what the law is about I don't know playing chess on Shabbat. Are you allowed to play chess on Shabbat? Right? Okay. So you're going to look up the halacha and see what uh, you know literature says and decide whether you think it makes sense to play chess. Says the Mechtav Meliyahu, why do you think you're looking up the halacha? You're looking up the halacha because you want to play chess. Otherwise you wouldn't look up the halacha. So you're not objective. right? You're bribed by your reality. Understand that when you're bribed, you're no longer objective. If this is what it means to be blinded, then that means that to see is to be objective. It's not just about physical seeing. Obviously, when I wake up in the morning, the purpose of this bracha at its most basic level is to appreciate the gift of sight. Right? You know, I had a a, a friend, and I had a student uh, many years ago, I ran yeshiva, and he was a boy who was a really, really bright kid. He later went to Brown University, and he had some sort of a degenerative disease that was causing him to gradually glow blind. And his eyesight was much poorer. He had these really thick glasses that were dark because the sunlight sort of exacerbated this, this malady. And uh, someone I know is still close with him, and he is almost completely blind. He, he, he can barely see. has to use these huge... And, and I have to think, of, of all the things that you could lose, that would be one of the most challenging. Like, like personally, I would be much more challenged if I lost the gift of sight than chas if I lost my legs. Like, okay, so your ride is safer, so you're sitting in it. But, but to lose your eyes, to not be able to see the world. And we don't actively appreciate these things. Right? You know, we spoke about last time that the Torah, and the Haggadah for that matter, wants us to slow down. They want us to appreciate all the different components of everything we have to appreciate, all the different stages. For example, in the Haggadah, the song of Dayenu, it doesn't just tell me that I should appreciate getting to Eretz Israel, building a Beit Midash, and having Torah. Obviously, if I appreciate getting to Eretz Israel, then I appreciate getting out of Egypt, right? But the song takes the time to say, first, appreciate what a gift it was that you're alive. Appreciate what a gift it was that Hashem took you out of Egypt. Appreciate that you had man, appreciate all the different stages, right? allow you a greater level of appreciation. we become better for appreciating all the gifts we have. So the Torah says, take a moment in the beginning of your day to appreciate the gift of sight. Now, how do you appreciate the gift of sight on its base level? So you can think about what a gift it is to see, or you can decide to look at that which guarantees you the ability to appreciate, Right? There's halacha, the Gemara says that a person is supposed to daven in a shul, shul should have seven windows. Right? Now, forgetting about sort of the, the allegorical understanding of that, on a deeper level, you know, I, I when I go to the States, which actually this is going to be the longest period of time, I'm not traveling as long as I can remember, but when I go to the States, especially in New York, one of the interesting phenomena that I notice is most of the shuls in the city, when you go to daven, are miserable places to daven. They, they, they're, they're in a basement or in the darkest room, especially like the morning weekday minion, right? It, which is interesting because you have, and even shulls that are on the east side, all the way near the river or on the Hudson, they don't have a room with a beautiful view, right? Really, you should be davening in a place. I, my muckum in the basement, if you remember, happens to be, I'm blessed to be near a window. So when I'm davening and I can look outside, now you would think you wouldn't want to daven near a window because that distracts you right? But seeing the world that Hashem created is part of tefillah. It's part of understanding the gift we've been given, right? And so so there is this idea that by seeing the gifts that we're given, we can appreciate the gift of sight. So one of the things you can do in the morning when you wake up is look around, pick something to look at that you appreciate. It could be a book, it could be a loved one, it could be a photo, it could be technology. Think how different this isolated experience would be if we didn't have this technology. You know, I, I think about what it was like to be in a quarantine in New York City in 1918 after four and a half years of war, and they're finally back together, and all of a sudden this flu is brought back by the soldiers from World War I, and it spreads across America like wildfire. Over a million people die, and they're quarantined for mo- months on end, and they have no technology there's no you're just alone in your room you know i read today about uh one of the akhronim who, who was uh, on a trip in i believe he got to turkey and there was a cholera epidemic going through turkey and he was quarantined just because he got off a boat for 40 days and he was in a room on his own they brought food to his door and he didn't see anybody nobody would go near him totally different experience so that's the base level of Pokehi for him. But on a deeper level, Pokeh rivrim is the ability to appreciate how we see the world, right? Do we see it objectively or not? By the way, what's a great example of this, right? Where do I find a person in the Torah who loses his gift of sight to some degree? Where do we find this? Who loses his gift of sight? Whose eyes Yitzhak. become... Whose eyes? Exactly Yitzhak. correct. Yitzchak. Right? The Pasuk says, Zaken <laughs> It's a Pasuk in Breshit, uh, in Brechit, I think, of Zion in Toldot, at right? The beginning of Prasha Toldot. Zaken <laughs> Sorry, it's not at the beginning of Prasha. When Yitzchak was old, enav <laughs> mirot, his eyes became dim from seeing. He wasn't able to see. Right? Now the Medresh has a field day with this. Right? The Medresh in Breshit Rabbah in uh, Nunvav says that Avraham. Was how did what, what happened to Yitzchak's eyes? Now again, the medrash is not meant. It's not a history book. It's not meant to tell me whether something happened literally. There's an idea here. So, so the medrash says, right? Let me let me actually see. I think I I might even have this here on Safari. Hang in a second. I can read you the makor inside, if I get it. If not, I'll let it go. Second. Uh, nope, not getting it. Um, anyway, the Medrash says that, that Avram Avinu started to cry. And the tears of Avram Avinu at the prospect of what he was doing to his son, even though he was fulfilling the will of Hashem, right? Those tears fell into the eyes of Yitzchak. And the salty tears of Avram caused Yitzchak's sight to go. That's what the Medrash says. What does the Medrash mean? What do the tears of Avram represent? They represent Rachamim. They represent mercy, and because Avram's mercy fell into Yitzhak's eyes, Yitzhak sort of acquired the gift of Rachamim from Avram. So he wasn't able to see properly. Now, when does the Torah tell us this? Right at the beginning of the story of Esav and Yaakov, and if you put that as the backdrop to understand the story, the story makes a lot of sense. What the midrash is telling me is Yitzhak's mistake was that he looked at the world through the lens of mercy, through the lens of Rachamim, right? So he saw Esav as his beloved son, right? Yitzchak loved Esav because he was a hunter. So he didn't fully see who Esav was, and he had mercy on him. He cared for him, and that caring somehow got in the way. Now again, I'm not going to sit and judge Yitzchak Avinu, but the Torah wants us to view it as though Yitzchak is a guy just like us. We also have to remember he was Yitzchak Avinu. But within the context of looking at it from that perspective, Yitzchak is blinded by his love for Esav. Right? So, Rachamim can blind us. If a person is blinded, he can't see straight. Right? So, Pokeh ivrim is the the ability to see things straight. I want to tell you something. I, we once talked about this in one of our shiurim. But I'll just remind you of this story. Um... You know, when we were in the army, when we were in Lebanon, I got to have a good army story. So one of the most difficult, um, I guess, ideas to get my head around, uh, we spent an entire day on this. You'll remember as soon as I mentioned the story, we spent an entire day on this in um, in officer's course. Okay, and... um, the base commander, who was a guy by the name of Shaul Mufaz, who would one day become the chief of staff of the Israeli army and later defense minister, he was actually the second in command at Entebbe, if you remember the story of the Entebbe raid, powerful individual, um, phenomenal leader. I don't necessarily agree with all of his politics, but he was a phenomenal leader in the army and um, had a couple of uh, interesting experiences with him. And um, he spent, he came in, I remember we were having a Dion on this. This was the topic of the day. And they were determined that every single officer cadet should get to where the army wanted to get them to. And this was actually the first time where it wasn't just about knowing what the law said, knowing what the army rules were, knowing what the commands were. It was about identifying with it. They were determined to get each of us to the point where it made sense to us. We bought into it. We accepted it. And I remember it was about eight, nine o'clock at night. We'd have an, had a number of different um discussions about this particular topic and then we had work to do on the side we had to research a few stories we had to come back we had to have Diyunim. it was one of those rare days where we spent the whole afternoon they pulled us back from shetach. we weren't in the field doing maneuvers so it was actually enjoyable you were sitting in a classroom and we were getting to the end of this story and uh, shalom of the base command they have to understand you're, you're you're not even an officer yet so your second lieutenant is like God. Your company commander is like God's mother. This is the commander of the commander of the commander of the commander of the commander of, the commander of your commander. I mean, he's, he's just God's mother. And we couldn't believe that when we were in a classroom. There were about 30 of us. And he walks in to sit down. I later found out that they planned this, that each company did this on a different day. He would sit with each group of cadets. And he got to us about 9, 9.30 at night. We thought we were done for the day. And he sat with us. He wanted to know what each cadet thought. He would not let us leave until everybody got around to this topic. The topic was something called Torah The idea that, um, that that arms are a vehicle, that you have to be ethical in arms. And part of this discussion was, what do you do when your instinct for mercy conflicts with your understanding of command? right? And the best example I can think of is the RPG kids. And when you get to Lebanon and you find yourself in a field and the first time something like this happens, you realize why they spent so much time making sure that you will identify with this. Because if you're in an alleyway commanding a, a column of tanks and a kid jumps out from behind a, an alley with an RPG in his hand and he's about to fire at you, you have two seconds, right? It's a very simple tool, the RPG. There's a trigger on top. You just have to point, aim and hit the trigger and that's it. Right. And you don't even have to aim exactly. Think about a tank, this massive 52 ton vehicle bearing down on, on a guy with an RPG from 30 feet. You can't miss. Right. So you've got to hit him before he hits you. And you have an override control. It's called a mashbet. And it's right around at your waist because you're standing up in the turret of the tank and you grab it and you have to throw the gun in the right direction and just fire off a a, a, a tank shell. And you also don't have to hit. If you hit anywhere on the ground, anywhere near him, if your shell hits the ground before he hits the trigger, he's toast. What an anti-personnel shell from a 105 millimeter cannon will do to the body of a person shooting an RPG is, is, is just, there's nothing left of him. And you're standing in the turret and you suddenly realize why they spend so much time getting you there. Because you don't have time to Pause. And then you realize that the person jumping out of the alley with an RPG is, is an eight-year-old kid. So your lens of Rachamim says, how can you fire? Your lens of Din says, how can you not? Now you're sitting here, I'm 56 years old. I have four kids, Kanai Nahara. Two of them are married. I have three grandchildren. None of that would have happened if I had looked at the world through the lens of Rachamim. Because you can't blame an eight-year-old kid. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just brainwashed and trained to do that. So put aside for the moment what sort of evil human beings would put an eight-year-old kid in front of, of a column of tanks, right? In fact, I remember there was there's a movie. I forget what it's called. You'll know it as soon as I, I mention it. It's about the, the most famous sniper in American military history. He was... Um, a Navy SEAL and he was American sniper. American sniper, exactly. So there's a scene. Do you remember this? They're in Fallujah, and there's a scene where this kid is going to pick up an RPG. This is a true story. And the sniper is looking through his vehicle and says, Don't pick it up. Don't pick it. Up. Remember that. So I'm sitting there watching this movie with my brothers. They wanted to see this movie, and I'm just having a flashback. It's it's the same story, and and it's clear what he has to do if that guy picks up an RPG to aim it at his at his fellow soldiers. So you wake up in the morning, you say, does Hashem allow me to not be blinded? Does Hashem open my eyes? Do I see the world objectively? Do I see the world the way I'm meant to see it? Am I stuck in a lens which is not real, which which will take me down sometimes the improper directions? Right? The way we're all judges. We judge life. We judge the world around me. By the way, how can you have as close as a human being to have can have to an objective perspective, only if you see the world through the lens of Hashem creating the world. If Hashem is the source of reality and Hashem is the source of right and wrong, then the question isn't what I think. The question is, is what I'm thinking what I think Hashem thinks. I say no right? Is this what Hashem wants of me? It's that same question again, right? That's what it means pokerim. right? Can I... Does Hashem give me the ability once again as I awaken in the morning to see the world through objective eyes? You know, you look around you. right? What do we say in Halel? It's such a powerful line. Einaim lahem Right? They have eyes but they do not see. How many people in the world that they're just like us, they're seeing a physical reality and they're just seeing something completely wrong? You know, so sometimes you can have two opinions where he could be right and I could be right. One person thinks we should rush the vaccine through because you have to get people vaccinated even if it hasn't been tested on human beings. And another person thinks that's irresponsible and dangerous and you got to take the time to test it even if it means we're all in isolation. They could both be right. they are two legitimate perspectives. But sometimes you have two different perspectives where in order for one to be right, the other has to be wrong. I mean, is the two-state solution a good idea? Right? Should the people calling themselves Palestinians have their own state, should they have the right to have an army sitting in Israel's heartland, etc., or not? If one of them is right and one of them is wrong, right? Do we see a world where we have to care for our fellow human being, Or should we put ourselves first? The idea that Hashem allows us to see things clearly. By the way, part of the way in which we see things clearly <clears throat> is that we're aware that we're not objective, right? The ability to hear another perspective, the ability to appreciate that other people have opinions that are different from ours—that's also part of pokehivrim that he allows us to see things more clearly and more objectively, right? And and by the way, Rashi—if you look at Rashi in Perak Chavzayin on that Pusuk in Pesach Aleph. Rashi there says, Davaracher, what does it mean that, that Yitzchak was blinded? Kideshi told Yaakov at the brachot. Hashem caused Yitzchak to be blinded by Rachamim so that he would be blinded, right? And that allows Yaakov to take the brachot. So most people look at that as a pshat level. That it just means that Hashem causes Yitzchak's eyes to go dim so that Yaakov will be able to take the brachot. There's another way to look at it. Hashem causes Yitzchak to have Rachamim, to see the world through a dimmer view, not to see it objectively, not to see that Esav is evil, so that Yaakov will be forced to take the Brachot. Right? Because the fact that Yaakov, the Ishtam Yoshevo Alim, Yaakov, who is sort of sitting you know, in his tent, he's the, the, the Yeshiva Bachar par excellence, has to come out of his shell and put on the, the garb of Esav and, and, and take his place sort of, you know, with Yuday asav that, that the Jews wants nothing more than to live in peace and, and to learn Torah, has to actually put on an army uniform that also is part of the bracha, right? That Hashem allows us to see. In fact, what is the ultimate objective sight that we long for? Moshe Rabbeinu comes to HaKosh Baruch Hu, and he says to him, A rainy night kvodecha. Show me your glory. Show me you. Let me see you. Let me see how you work in the world. I want to see you. What does Hashem say to him? Man cannot see me and live. We're not capable of total vision. Right? So Hashem says, but I'll tell you what. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand. Allegorically. And when I pass by, Right, and you will see my my rear, my backside. It's a strange dialogue. Hashem, Hashem is gonna, you know, God, Moshe wants to see God. God says you can only see my posterior. What does that mean? So Rassalvechik in one of his drashot suggests that the only way we can really see Hashem's hands in the world is when we see Hashem passing in the world, when we look back, when we see the rear, when we see Hashem through the the lens of the past. It's hard to see Hashem in the world, but we can see Hashem through history. We may not be able to comprehend the Shoah, but we can at least see that three years after the Shoah, after the Holocaust, the state of Israel was born. So today, 75 years later, we're able to appreciate that Hashem has a plan, that, that, that it's hard to imagine, this is just random. We're living in a time like that, where it's impossible to see Hashem's hand. How can we understand what Hashem is doing? And yet it's so clear, if we look at the world through better lenses, That Hashem is stirring the pot. That something powerful, hopefully magnificent, is going on. Right? And that connects us back to B'dikat Chameetz. So we turn out the lights and we take a candle. Because we need to understand that the goal is to be able to see through the darkness. That we understand that the only light that allows us to see is the light of Torah, the light of Mitzvah, the light of Hashem. That's what we're trying to get to. The Jewish people are about to experience freedom. Don't get stuck in the illusion of the world of Egypt. Don't think that what's really important is that you physically got out of Egypt. Understand that what's really the goal here is just to become a different type of servant, to serve something greater than yourself, to be beyond the limited view with which we look at the world, and to understand that freedom is not about who we are, it's about what we are, uh, sorry, it's not about where we are, it's about who we are and what we are and how we see the world. And all of those are are the opportunity to appreciate the bracha of Bokeh that Hashem opens our eyes to appreciate the possibility, to long for the opportunity, and to do the work necessary to actually experience that as a reality. So that's a little bit of food for thought